This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our January edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Bryce, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Justin. It's good to be back at it. And so this has become something of a tradition now. We begin each year with a prediction show. We'll look back at our 2023 predictions and judge our performance, and we'll offer some new predictions for 2024 and beyond. Bryce, uh, I know this sort of thing is your favorite. Oh, yes. I love, you know, predictions because they're, you know, always so uh, spot on and accurate and our ability to foresee the future is just so uh, crystal and clear. uh, Yeah. And is it something like economists have predicted nine of the last three recessions? Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. You know, well, I mean, certainly we're going to talk about 2023. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get right into it with looking at 2023. We'll start with the economy. Bryce, you predicted that the 2023 economy would be messy, uh, messy as it was in 2022, but maybe a little bit less so. How would you rate that prediction? You know, I mean, I think I was a little more pessimistic on here than I feel ever felt I was. There's always a one in six chance of a recession, and that strikes me as about right. Uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And, you know, obviously we made it through all of 2023 without any kind of hint of a recession in real terms. I don't know where you scored that, but like it was, I was not surprised. Like it wasn't like I was like, oh yeah, there's going to be a recession. I was never that. So I was always like, oh, this is good. Like we're not having a recession. Doesn't seem like we're going to have a recession. Inflation has come down. Uh, we appear to have magically pulled off the mysterious soft landing. Transition to politics. Last year, we were coming off of the 2022 midterm elections in which Democrats outperformed versus expectations. In our conversation last year, I predicted a decline in tribal politics and an increased focus on candidate quality. Um, I'm not sure how I would rate that prediction. I mean, it's, it's, I don't quite feel like we're in the same tribal environment we were heading into the 2016 and 2020 elections. Um, but I certainly see the potential for just increase in tribal variables as we approach the 2024 election. It's hard to say where we land on that prediction. I think you have to wait for this year. Yeah. Uh, I think politics predictions are difficult without elections to validate. Yeah. Uh, So I think we just put a hold on that one. The true revelation of whether what's changed, if anything, uh, we won't know until we have another election. Okay, uh, last one that we'll review. Bryce, you predicted that the demand for Montana would continue and there would be increased tension about how to handle that, both in terms of housing stock and also in terms of how we manage our natural resources, um, public spaces, sort of the tourism side of the economy. How do you feel about that? If you look at net migration, which is, you know, the simple indicator of demand for Montana, right? So the number of people who moved to Montana versus left during the pandemic, particularly in 2020 to 2021 and 2021, 2022, which is the data we had last year, I was record breaking in Montana, right? Three and a half times what it had been for the rest of the 21st century. It did come down between, so the data are July to July. So July 22 to July 23. Um, It did come down, um, but it still would have, if you know, you set aside the pandemic and you just look at from 
2000 to 2019, it would have been the second highest of that period, still about 60% above the average. So not insane, like we were dealing with for two years, but still elevated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously the question is, is how much of that decline is simply because of uh, an inability to find housing? Um, So if there had been more housing, uh, would there have been more people? Or did we just see the demand for Montana show up in somewhat surprising stability in housing prices. They didn't keep going up at the rates right. they were going, but given the rise in interest rates, simple explanation, you would think, oh, well, interest rates are so much higher. People aren't going to pay as much for housing. Yeah. You'd expect to see a little bit of a correction there. And we just, I mean, there's a little bit of stability, maybe a slight decline here and there, but housing prices remain highly elevated, which is another indicator of strong demand for Montana. I feel like we've backed off some of the pressure in some of the natural resources areas relative to, say, 2020 and 2021 when they were really overrun, but those aren't going anywhere, right? You know, that you still have, you know, only so much Blackfoot, only so much lakes, only so much hiking trails. Um, and, you know, the land managers, the public land managers, you know, they are acquiring mm-hmm. lands, they are investing in new trails and stuff, but, you know, certain things in Montana are fixed. Yeah, there are you limits. Know, there are actual limits in terms of what we can supply. And so um, that's an inevitability. It's just a question of when and at what intensity. Okay, so let's turn to 2024. We'll start with the economy. Bryce, you want to kick it off? Uh, Sure. Um, I am optimistic that this is going to be not necessarily a blockbuster year, Mm. but a boring year. Okay. Uh, I am expecting that uh, the economy is just going to kind of hum along. And for the first time in a long time, we're not going to be, you know, look, people like to think that there's a problem in the economy at all times. Yes. Uh, There is a strong demand uh, in the news space for negative stories. Uh, You know, people will look at the economy and they will try and find any indication that there is problem and they will find them. Yeah. Particularly in election year, that effect seems to be heightened. Major presidential candidate is actively rooting for the economy to tank. Yes. Uh, So, you know, people will try and find evidence of it. But if you stick with the main indicators, GDP, employment, income, you know, investment, all that kind of stuff. I expect it's just going to kind of hum along. So there's two indices of inflation. So there's the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Yep. Uh, and then there's the personal consumption expenditures. Fed has decided that core PCE, which is just a subset of personal consumption expenditures, is the thing that they're really monitoring. And in the last three months, it's basically been at like 2.5%. Okay. Um, yeah. Which isn't the 2% target, but it's close it's enough close. that, you know, I think the expectation is, is at some point this year, you'll start to see some interest rate cuts, kind of pull back a little on that Yep. Uh, to try and, you know, make sure that the investment side of the economy doesn't keep getting subject to high interest rates, mm-hmm. but not a ton because the economy is still, you know, it's running a little bit hot. It still seems to be fine, but they'll, you know, there'll be, be some fine tuning, Sure, but I don't think you're going to see a ton of big shocks. We've been in a re- remarkable run. So we have the COVID recession, we have all of the COVID policy, we have then the supply chain mess that comes out of the policies, and then we have the hangover from the COVID policies that leads to this big inflation. So there's been, you know, I've been taken to making jokes a lot of times when I give my little talks around town about the economy. I always make jokes about like just how like insane it's been. Yeah. I, I feel like for the first time and at least since 2019, 2018, 
we're going to be kind of normal, which doesn't mean that there won't be things that people are going to complain about. There'll be economic news. People will pay attention to it. But, you know, I think we're going to kind of hum along with, you know, standard employment growth, keeping up with population. Um, You know, there'll be some weaknesses. We're, We're already starting to see like, you know, part of the return to normalcy isn't just on the 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 bad stuff going away like inflation, but you're also households have built up this real big cushion yeah uh, over the course of the pandemic, and it's starting to fade a little bit. Sure, um, you know you're also starting to see like uh, delinquencies on not on mortgages or oddly enough, but other forms of debt, credit card debt, mm-hmm. car debt, or whatever student loans, they've ticked back up, but not like. They were well below their historic averages, and now sure. they're starting to get back to normal, right? So again, I, I just think this will be the year of relative normalcy, whatever that means with respect to an economy that, like I said, there's always a problem. There's always something that we can be focused on and being like, oh, that's a problem. Right. But yeah, I mean, I like that prediction, return to normalcy. Um, my prediction uh, in 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 the economy, maybe is 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 one that could disrupt that state of normalcy at least you know at, at some level. So so I foresee some major kind of negative consequence in some domain for Elon Musk. Um, he's either forced to give up control of Twitter, uh, maybe he loses massive government contracts for SpaceX tied to his you know, alleged drug use, etc. It could take multiple forms, but he is such a big player in so many areas of our economy. And he appears to be just living outside the bounds of what is sustainable. And I think that catches up to him this year in some way. And how that catches up to him could have major effects on multiple domains of the economy. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, obviously a major player in various forms of tech. and, you know, I mean, look, he's already suffered, a, what was it, Twitter's or X's value is down 75% relative to what he's paid. Right. Um, that's got to have some form of consequence at some point. Let's move to politics. Uh, take it away. I don't have strong predictions. Hmm. Um, I just basically, I, mean, I think, you know, all the indicators are that in terms of electoral outcomes, we're at a true kind of 50-50, everything's kind of knife edged. Yeah. Um, I do think that relative to normal, I won't say it's likely, but relative to what we would normally expect, there is a massively elevated chance that one of the two leading front runners for the presidency is not actually running at, by November. Okay. Um, so either Trump gets or, you know, Trump a gets, criminal indictment or one of them dies. Either they drop out for health, uh, including death. Yep. Um, or, you know, yeah, Trump is in jail. Um, you know, you take all of those things combined. Both uh, both of those possibilities are far from zero. In a normal election cycle, we would be sitting here saying, that's who's running. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, 90 plus percent, right? I mean, it would be almost 100 percent. I guess we have enough elections that it's basically 100 percent. Um, and this time, I think, again, it's not more likely than not, but you're well into the double digit percentages for one of the two of them to not make it. Uh, to November. It's so bizarre that we have such sort of a, a, a stable short run scenario. Like it's so hard to imagine a scenario. Well, it's easy to imagine, but but in the absence of a shock as the one as one you described, it's hard to imagine Biden and Trump not being the nominees, right? Yet at the same time, as stable as that likely outcome is, 
what a fragile predicament we're in as well. That, you know, how many indictments is Trump facing? 70 or something like that. So you look at the batting average of state and federal prosecutions, like the chance of him getting convicted for one of those charges is, you know, tough to bet against. And then the age question is, is just huge. You can't just, you, you, you it's, it's, it catches up with all of us. For, Nobody gets out alive. For both of them, right? Yes. You know, there's, somehow there's an increasing focus on on Biden's age, but Trump's age is no better. And the, you know, mental acuity issue based on their performance in public, yeah. you know, neither of them are clearly where they would have been where they, you know, in their middle ages. And maybe that is fine. Maybe we don't actually need a president who is... Uh, you know, firing on all cylinders because the president is just one person out of a whole staff and an administration. And ultimately what matters is who you staff your administration with. Uh, but like, you know, the age issue is real. So if I had to pin you down, would you say three years from now, neither Trump or Biden is president? Ooh, interesting. Um, I guess I would take that bet. You would take that bet. I would certainly, I mean, I guess what we got to go get some odds here. The probability that Neither of them are president. I would say at least there's a one in three chance that neither of them is president. Three years from now. It's within three years from now, yeah. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm here with Bryce Ward, making some predictions for 2024. Since we're on the topic, um, I think Biden gets gets reelected. He's getting crushed in the polls right now. I think those polls are less measuring support for Donald Trump and more measuring just kind of discomfort with Biden and his age and sort of his lack, his team's lack of ability to sell their accomplishments. Um, As we talked about moments ago, the economy is doing pretty well on most measures of importance. And then you, you, you sort of benchmark that against the rest of the world. I mean, we have higher rates of growth and lower inflation coming out of the pandemic than any sort of peer nation. Um, that's an achievement. And if your prediction about the sort of return to normalcy bears out, I think at the end of the day, people pulled the lever based on the economy and how they sort of feel about how they're doing. And I think a candidacy based on vengeance and trying to get people angry about a reality that might not be what they're personally experiencing, I just think the shelf life of that kind of appeal um, is limited. As much as it can get people whipped up, much like in 2022, people seemed whipped up, but at the end of the day, they sort of voted for stability rather than rolling the dice on on something else. Yeah, that seems fair, particularly if the economic prediction holds. Um, that strikes me as not unreasonable. The thing that I will at least temper that with. I think the coalitions in both parties want to break up. Yeah. In a healthier institutional system, they would. Yeah. They would reform in some way. Um, but on the right, you know, there's a Trump part of the party and there's a non-Trump 
part of the party. And I think yeah. the non-Trump part of the party would be very happy to not deal with the Trump part of the party anymore. And then basically it's the mess we've seen in the House of Representatives this year, mm-hmm. right? The Republican coalition is not a governing coalition. They don't know what they want. Um, they want different things. And there's a group of flamethrowers that want to just burn it all down. Yeah. And there's a group of institutionalists that don't. And on the left, you have kind of a similar dynamic. You do. Right? You yeah. have an, what I'll call the identity politics progressive left group. And you have kind of more mainstream liberals. And then you have conservative minorities. Um, that's kind of been the three parts of it. And the conservative minorities are already moving yeah, out. Yeah, they're fleeing. We see that in the polling yeah. for sure. And then and in the elections too. Yeah. And then the the mainstream left, I, I think they're kind of tired of the identity focused left and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's normal when you have control of something, right? You know, you start getting sick of each other and the decisions you're making, right? Mm-hmm. This is why you see some of the thermostatic back and forth, right? Is it turns out it's really hard to keep your governing coalition together it because is. you actually, it's no longer just, oh, we'll do this. We'll offer you, you know, it's, it's, it becomes tangible, the trade-offs you're making. Right. So that's somewhat normal. Some of that normal. is healthy. Normal. It's normal and healthy, but I do think, you know, we're seeing a lot with Israel, some of the weird stuff with higher education, you know, I think there's a lot of distaste for each other. Yeah. You know, the question is, is at the end of the day, can you keep the coalition together to actually win an election? And I think on both sides, that's why I kind of view it as a real, still it's a 50-50. I mean, without this, I would be fully in your camp. Biden will eventually pull this out because the economy is fine and Actual circumstances on the ground for most people are fine. Not to say that they're, they're always struggles, sure. but in terms of struggles that tend to lead to incumbent losses, yeah. we're just not there, yeah. right? So, but you have the age issue and you have a coalition that whatever those salient issues are um, will strongly affect whether the coalition can congeal enough to create a cl- close election or a winning election, you know, because- yeah, you know, it, it it could it wants to break on both sides. Okay, so that seems like we've covered politics. I think we have time for one more category, Bryce, and I'll sort of just throw it in the culture, other, whatever, and I'll kick this one off. Um, I think we saw a turning point of a sort at the end of 2023 with a congressional testimony from the presidents of MIT, Penn, and Harvard. I've long been concerned with the decline in the perceived value of a college education, particularly among Republicans. It's now less than 50% of Republicans say they would are likely to send their kid to college. That's a big problem, problem for universities, problem for society. That decline has coincided with the decline in ideological diversity on campuses. In the last 10 years, conservative thinkers on college campuses have gone from endangered to now nearly extinct. That's not healthy for institutions that are built, supposedly built around the exchange of ideas and the debate of ideas and trying to smash ideas into each other. Uh, Now ideas are not welcome and some are considered scary. And that's too bad because we need to sort of train people to figure out what their ideas are and how to cultivate them, defend them and uh, promote them. Uh, So hopefully this Israel-Palestine conflict and the associated sacking of Liz McGill from Penn and and Claudine Gay from Harvard serve as a wake-up call. I don't don't know quite what happens, but I think universities 
and people who support universities saw this moment as kind of a watershed of, whoa, these institutions we hold dear, supposedly hold dear, are just not in touch with the reality on the ground. And hopefully that gives us, you know, as, as somebody committed to an institution of higher learning, you know, I will use the inclusive us. I hope that gives us reason to pause and think, how are we serving the needs of society? How are we serving the needs of our students? Um, and how can we do it better? So hopefully that's a bit of a, of a wake-up call to, to folks in this, in this line of work. The pendulum is swinging back in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, I think there is a greater recognition that, yeah, universities need to figure out, like, culturally what they're going to allow uh, and certainly need to push back on some of the illiberal attitudes that were creeping in, right? There's notions of you have to believe these things and you have to subscribe to these ideas. And if not, then you are bad. Hopefully it actually extends beyond universities. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've gotten far too many important institutions captured by certain ideologies. And, you know, that applies to education, not just university, higher education, sure. but media. K-12, yep. media, uh, law enforcement, you know, there's just far too much polarization in terms of, you know, certain types of people are, quote, not accepted here. And, you know, those institutions are far too important to be captured. Yeah. Um, and, you know, certainly to be pushing uh, agendas with respect to what you're allowed to think or what you're allowed to expect or whatever it is. It's just got to be there has to be some parameters on the mission. Part of the reason why it's become difficult to have diverse viewpoints is because people have become very uncomfortable and they view it as, a, you know, an attack when it should just be a little, I'm curious about that. Well, you know, let me exp explain that to me because I don't understand. We're told that, hey, this could trigger you or this, this is maybe a microaggression or words are violence. You know, I think those are, I mean, I, I don't think any ideas are necessarily dangerous, but, but framing debate around ideas as potentially harmful is, is, I think, a problem. The set of ideas that are actually dangerous is very small. Part of the problem is, you know, when, you have, when you're having a debate about economic policy, it's really hard to view that idea as particularly dangerous. Right. You know, it can be bad or good depending on how the redistribution of things is, whatever it is. Why, where I think we have allowed these things to merge is, again, identity, right? Because, well, your opinion means that I'm not a human or whatever it is. You know, well, that feels very different, yes. right? And so it's that sphere of debate, which, again, in a cultural war society, consumes more oxygen, whether it's actually consuming more intellectual bandwidth, I don't know, but it consumes more of the oxygen, you know, that's where you kind of, we have to figure out how to be able to have discussions about those types of issues without thinking of them as harmful. Yeah. Right. They can reveal that you are this way. You have these opinions. That's any, but we have to be able to, particularly on a university campus, you have to be open to them. You have to be able to listen to them. You have to be able to engage with them and not just be like, 
well, you're just not allowed to say that, right? You know, and that's where it has to get back to. It has to get back to, uh, okay, well, let me hear what you have to say. And part of this problem is also because the quality of debate in general is low. Right. 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 You have a lot of We're people- not trained who, in how to do it. It's not a skill that's reinforced in our systems. There's a lot of bad faith actors- yeah, totally. Who, you know, will just not ever listen to any form of discussion- but, you know, we do have research on how to have difficult conversations, how to have conversations about people with, when someone who disagrees with you and the distillation of it. When you're having a debate with somebody, the only way to persuade them is to start with, huh, that's curious. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, exactly. Right? You have to invite them in. You have to be open to it. This is our role in society as far as I'm concerned. The, ma- the macro role is to cultivate that notion of curiosity. Things are always on a pendulum. They're swinging. That one's swaying, I think, hopefully, is, you know, getting back to your prediction, is as far as it's going to go. And we're going to start, hopefully, swinging back in a way of, let's figure out how we can, you know, make universities something that is open to people with a variety of different viewpoints. It doesn't mean that you can't debate, argue, discuss, try and persuade, but isn't like, policing of ideas and you know and then hopefully by universities doing that we'll also do the same thing in a whole bunch of other spheres where we've gotten a little too insular how about a recommendation or resolution any any things that you're sort of thinking about or endeavoring to improve in the new year every time we do this it's always a, a variation on the same thing yep uh same theme for me which is community 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 uh i just think that uh, another pendulum that we need to start swinging back in another direction is away from individualism. Uh, we need to start embedding ourselves and re- recognizing that as humans, we need for our health and well-being to view ourselves as functioning, contributing members of a community. Get together with your friends, find a group of people who are uh, interesting and challenging and where you have something to contribute. And that doesn't have to be, you know, that can be in your work, that can be in your social life, that can be, you know, it should be in all of them. But, you know, go out and figure out how you can what in, do an internal investigation. What do, what do I have to offer? And then go figure out where you can do it. Yeah, I think my parting shot for this episode is is in a similar vein. I'm an optimist and an institutionalist. I believe in institutions maybe to a fault. Um, I think our institutions need to do better. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to get worse before we get better. My basic way of understanding the moment we're in as a society is we're, we're kind of reshuffling in some fundamental ways. I think what's happening is we're in this upheaval because it's part of the process of expanding rights and opportunity to more people of more stripes. And I guess therein lies my recommendation. If you want to live in a world where the arc of history bends towards justice, then you have a responsibility to figure out how to contribute to that bending, right? And so I'm going to be thinking about ways to, to, to bend that arc in 2024 and beyond, and I encourage listeners to, to do the same. That sounds good. Cool. Bryce, until the next one, thanks very much for being here. Well, thanks for having me as always, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. 
with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.